Hey, John, uh, I'm going to go take a leak real quick. I'll be right back. Okay. Well, hey, everyone. While he does that, welcome back to Around the Campfire, where I'm John, and I'm your host. And unfortunately, Ty cannot be here tonight. He's stuck at work where the man is holding him down in the salt mines. Hopefully, he'll survive tonight's lashing and be back another episode, um, probably later on this week. But for now, I have my good buddy, Ethan. Hello, Ethan. Hello, John. Believe it or not, I am actually um, somewhat close to Ty, one would say. One one could indeed say that. One could say that if you weren't able to hang out with Ty or if you weren't able to talk to Ty, there's actually a better person that you could hang out with and that you could talk to. Wow. Ty 2.0. Ty 2.0. And it turns out that it would be his younger brother, Ethan. Wow, look at that. What an and, introduction. But it also turns out that I am that younger brother. Wow. What a coincidence. I know. Well, glad to have you here. Tie 2.0 slash Ethan. In all, seri- in all seriousness, glad to be here. Um, so why don't you, just for the people around the campfire here who don't know who you are, kind of introduce yourself and tell us um, a little bit about what you do for a living. Okay. Well, like I said, I'm Ty's younger brother. Um I am three years younger than Ty. Um, so if you've heard Ty's introduction, mine's probably going to be a little bit similar. Born and uh, raised in Southern California, uh, near a great, beautiful city called Los Angeles. Um, if you couldn't hear the sarcastic undertones in that. Uh, I could. They were quite strong. Okay, good, good. good yes. Good. Um, so yeah, born and raised in uh, Los Angeles County. Um, and then... I uh, went to uh, private Christian high school, and after that, I uh, decided that I would go to college, community college, where I met you. That's true. That is where yeah. we met. And we were we were meeting in a uh, criminal justice class. Was it report writing? I don't know. Something like that. Yeah. Uh, I, I, you. Who was our uh, teacher for that one? Our professor. Oh, beats me. I couldn't oh, okay. tell you. Uh, I think it was like an older cop. I think so too. Most really... of the, most of the teachers there were older cops. Yeah. <laughs> you could tell though he was just really like retirement mode was on. Oh yeah. I just I think my school I would I would I've never been good with homework, um, and so I think a lot of the times like when I would turn in just my crappy homework, he didn't even care. I don't even think he looked at it. I don't think so either. Anyway. Definitely had retirement on the mind. He did. That is where you and I met. And then shortly after that, I... uh, So now now that you reached the peak of your life and are going downhill, what's after that? Yeah. (laughs) You learned... He was the highlight. uh, Yeah, you learned very quickly in this life that once you've met John Green, everything from that point forward is just going to be like falling down a cliff. You've reached... That's everything what I do hurts. To people's lives just straight yeah. downhill, tumble rolls yeah. down a cliff. Everything hurts. Everything's uncomfortable, and yeah. the well, only the only thing that really gives you hope is that you know that you had met John Green. Um, well, well, thank you, Ethan, for those yeah. words. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah. Uh, shortly after that, um, I think it was I only did a semester of community college. I uh, decided that I would join um, a sheriff's department in Southern California. Um, but because I was 18, I wasn't old enough to be obviously a patrol copper. So, uh, I was a correctional deputy, uh, in a County jail. 
for about five years. Um, and then uh, from there, I joined uh, a bigger police agency in a big city. And I was a police, I've been a police officer uh, in, in that city uh, ever since. Well, nice. Um, so I, I don't know, I have a lot of questions here. What's it like being a police officer in the big city? Uh, it is kind of what you would, I think people would think. Um, and it's also a lot of not what people would think. Um, I'll, I'll explain that. Please do. Uh, yeah. Because if you stopped right that's there, very, it wouldn't be a very good a very, answer. Yeah. That, that's a very broad statement, but, um, <laughs> I would say that it, it, it's have, cause the sheriff's department that I worked at, and even though I was only working corrections, like you got a taste for what it was like, uh, working in that County. Um, and it, the, my first uh, department that I worked for, it was kind of a rural county. Um, not a lot going on. They had their little hot spots of crime, um, but a lot of narcotics, a lot of meth. That's what most of the guys were getting uh, booked on. Um, obviously, in any department, you're going to have your major crimes as well. But for the most part, it was kind of narcotics was a big thing in that particular uh, county. So not a, there were gangs, and I got exposed to prison gangs and, and gangs that were in the jails, but uh, not a lot of crazy stuff per se. Yeah, can we um, like talk about that real fast? Like what was it like? What are jails actually like for those of us who have never actually been like booked and processed? Jails are definitely a place you don't ever want to be. Um, but it is very, uh, I, I want to say it's very, um, respect-based, especially being a deputy. Uh, that's working there. You you learn, and this is what I, I think the biggest lesson I learned, and it's invaluable. Um, it is something that I, I carried with me into becoming a patrol officer, and it helped drastically. Was you learn how to deal and talk to people, um, and, and that's good with any profession. Doesn't matter what you're doing. If you can learn how to talk to people and get people to like you and be a, a leader, that's part of being a leader. Um, you have a huge upper hand in whatever career you're in. I learned that partially the hard way, working jails, but you have to think about it. Uh, you're, a, a, you know, you're a person of authority in a place where there's just criminals who are not used to having authority. That's why they're there, or they don't respect authority. Um, they already don't really like the cops because that's how they got there. Um, and you have to, in that kind of instance, you know, you don't have a gun on you. You have usually in, 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 uh, in jail facilities, you might have a taser. That's like your biggest weapon. Um, you have pepper spray and then that's it. So you learn that, um, these guys aren't just going to automatically respect you because you're a correctional deputy. Um, they've been dealing with law enforcement, most of them for a very, very long time. Uh, and in that kind of environment, I learned over time, not right away, but just the, the, there's so much that goes into it, but being able to talk people into getting, uh, them to do what you want. Um, so like, uh, diffusing situations and stuff like that. Absolutely. Most of the so time when these, when these guys get brought in, they're not happy. I mean, they yeah, just kind of, what happens like from the second you get to jail, like mm -hmm. going on from there, what happens? So you'll get brought into usually a booking facility 
there's like a counter. Um, you're in handcuffs. So we have uh, the person who's been arrested sit on a bench. We get the initial like kind of crime report. We get their uh, identification. And then there's a process of just running their paperwork. Um, and we figure out their prior criminal history. At that point, uh, and we take all the all your property is going to be taken off of you. Um, keys, wallet, phones, obviously everything is taken off of you. Um, usually once we've like put you in our computer system, we'll take that person over to a, a finger uh, a fingerprint machine. We take your fingerprints that goes into a California database that is directly linked to the F, like an FBI database. Gotcha. Um, and that's kind of how we keep track of people who, you know, their criminal history. Um, and then at that point, once you're done getting your fingerprints taken, usually with the facility that I would work in, we would allow you an opportunity to make a phone call or maybe two. Um, that in some cases would be to a lawyer. In other cases, it would just be to like a, a friend or whatever, just letting them know a loved one that they've been arrested. And then from there, we'll take you into like a back room where we're going to do a strip search every time. Uh, and that's very, that is where a lot of people get uncomfortable. Righteously, yeah, so, righteously, yeah, righteously so. I mean, at that point, you really feel like your rights have been stripped from you, literally, because you're having to take off all of your clothes. Um, we're going to have you lift up your genitals. We're going to check your body cavities, every single person, to make sure you're not bringing in narcotics. And then your paper, you'll go to a temporary holding cell in that intake area, and we'll run your criminal history. We'll figure out. We have a unit called the classification unit, and they get your paperwork at that point. They'll figure out how many, how experienced you are, if you're a gang member, if you've been arrested for a violent offense. In some cases, if you've been arrested for molesting a child, um, and, and in each one of those, you're going to get a different uh, assignment for your cell. So if you've been arrested for, book, or, you know, like molesting a kid, um, you're going to have to go protective custody. And we can get into the politics of that later or right now if you want. Yeah. Well, so just explain why that happens, I guess. Um, like I said, when you get it into a jail, it becomes very primal. But there are there is structure. Not so much from the deputies. We're not making up these the, the, the structure so much. Our structure is more broad you go to bed at this time you're going to wake up at this time um at this time you're going to have recreation time at this time you're going to eat and then from that's kind of like our schedule as the deputies like we're kind of making that happen and then you'll eventually be put to bed right there's a time where we take out it's like summer camp we turn off all the lights Night time yeah and then they're expected bedtime rather yeah they're expect i mean they could still be up like reading or whatever but they're expected to be in on their racks or in their cell the, the rules that I'm talking about are enforced not necessarily by us, but they're enforced by other inmates. And that's so how does like how does that happen? And like what what would be something like if I went to jail? What would some be something that I would do that would piss people off enough where they have to enforce it themselves? Um. So, like, explain like from step one, Johnny mm-hmm. gets to jail, and then let's do a little story out of it. Yeah. So Johnny gets to jail, right? And Johnny, if he does not have a uh, extreme arrest history. Let's say that he got arrested for something kind of petty, right? Um, he is going to be put in a low-level uh, housing unit. And what that looks like in a low-level housing unit is you're not probably going to be in a cell. You're probably going to be in like a day room setting where there's bunks. 
and you'll probably be in a room with about 40 to 60 other inmates. Um, this is where it gets kind of crazy. It doesn't matter if you're in a low-level dorm or if you're in max security. Um, there are jail politics that are enforced by the inmates, not by us, but by the inmates. And what that looks like is you have basically you're segregated right when you enter. So if you're a white person, you're going to be put in with, uh, well, and this is, I want to be clear, this is not by the, the deputies. This is going to be enforced by the other inmates. But you're going to be expected to basically hang out and you're going to be expected to um, group in with your race. And so you have the wood pile, which would represent the white uh, arrestees. You have the Southsiders, which would be the Hispanics. And you have the brothers, which would be the, the African-American black inmates. Um, there, there is no other group. So if you're Pacific yeah, Islander, Asians? right? Yeah. If you're Pacific Islander, that is something that the inmates are going to discuss in their own races. And they're going to figure oh, out. They just decide like person, like person, person by person. person? Really? Yeah, they they kind of do. Yeah. Um, so is there anything that makes people go like, like what, what is the criteria for where you would go? So from my understanding of it, <laughs> it's kind of funny. Um, the inmates are going to look at it from a numbers point of view, right? So let's say that the Southsiders are always very, 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 um, powerful. Um, there's a lot of them. They have numbers, African-Americans and whites, not so much African-Americans, some places in the jail. Yeah. They will have a high population, but if they're low on numbers, they're really going to want that other race on their side. So usually, and this is what I saw most of the time, if like a Pacific Islander, if uh, definitely Middle Eastern came in, the blacks would take him in. But just for the numbers? Just for the numbers. Okay. Interesting. And that makes, I have to kind of explain why that's important, I guess, because um, politics, we call it politicking. Um, they have rules that they make up to keep the structure kind of flowing within uh, with their kind of day-to-day -day life. And like I said, it all, it all does revolve around race. Um, but basically, uh, on certain days, the Hispanics will be allowed to use the phones in, in the day room, right? Okay. On, on certain days, the blacks will. On certain days, it'll be the Hispanics' turn or the whites' turn to use the showers. Everything is kind of like, that's their kind of like, inner jail like scheduling politicking that they do within themselves now let's say that johnny comes in and he has no idea about this yeah. usually they'll usually they'll teach them up but let's say that johnny comes in he has no idea about this he goes over and grabs the phone when it's a black person's day to use it unbelievable it's a huge i know travesty right well it is at that point usually they're not complete and I, i'm not trying to be like disrespectful but they're not like complete savages like they are, they do use logic at that point probably the black's shot caller will go over to the to the white shot caller and he'll be like hey you need to teach this guy up because he just used the phone on our day right this is where it could progress very quickly into like a race riot because if those guys don't like each other or if there's been prior instances of that happening and the blacks have noticed that the whites are continuing to do this. Um, and they don't, they don't like the punishment 
or the correction that the white shot caller is giving to his like troops, that's when you'll have a race riot on your hands. So just over something as simple as Johnny used the the bathroom on the South Siders Day or the Brothers Day. Yeah. Dang, dude. So in in many instances, you can have uh, things kind of deteriorate quickly. I've seen it where it was the deputies that were kind of egging this on, right? Um, and this is where I was talking about. You just have to be learn to be good with people. Um, when I first got in there, I was very, I was very um, uncultured. I was very naive. I had been born and raised in a family that respected law enforcement. I had been raised to respect authority. Um, and you learn that, and you know, I was raised in a Christian high school. I wasn't exposed to a lot. So I expected when I got a title and a badge that other people, even criminals, would automatically respect that authority, right? Right. And I learned very, very quickly that that is absolutely not the case. And I know that a lot of people listening right now would be like, yeah, well, duh. But as as a as an 18-year-old 18, 18 kid, and this is, I mean, we can have a discussion about whether it's appropriate to give somebody so young that kind of authority. Even a police officer at 21 is still pretty young. Yeah, I think so. Uh, what do you think about that? Um, like, do you think there's know, a man. good like, age? I think, I mean, the brain stops developing around 25. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't think 24, 25 would be a bad cut off is i think especially when you're young like you were kind of going in there's i mean a lot of young kids that aren't exposed to a whole lot that don't know how to deal with how to diffuse the situation you know right peacefully but assertively because they never had to and they've been kind of sheltered i think that's just doing a disservice to everyone involved because if you get someone in there that you know hasn't had life experience and can't control their emotions or um, in an in adrenaline rush, for example, then they can get themselves or someone else killed. Right. I so think we'll talk about that in a few minutes. Cause we'll, I want to talk about what, what something that's very like been standing out to me is like, you see all these videos right online. Right. And granted in my, in my like professional opinion, and I'm, I'm pretty open-minded um, because as a police officer, there's nothing I hate more and seeing another police officer give us a bad name. And you know, before we jump on, can we put a pin in that and introduce the rest of your career? Cause we're still at kind of a jailer. And then now we're talking police officer. Do you want me to so hit it want... like point by point? Like what I've done? <laughs> oh yeah. Just. Okay. Just generally, I yeah. suppose. So, well, I'll, I'll say this when, when I first started, that was my perspective, right? That I was going to be respected. Um, and I learned, I remember in one instance, finally, it kind of dawned on me because I was working intake and I had gone over to a holding cell and, uh, from intake, you have to walk once the, once an inmate gets housed, he gets his housing unit assignment. You have to walk them over to their housing unit. And, um, I walked over to one of the holding cells. I opened it up and there was three grown men and they're older than I am. And they're looking at me as an 18 year old kid. And I looked young. You remember yeah. I was very young looking. Even looking back at my picture, my graduation picture from the Sheriff Academy, I was like, the other I saw, I saw it the other day and I was like, oh my gosh. Just embarrassing. Just I a like kid. A little, yeah, I just looked like a little kid. 
So I can imagine from their perspective what they were thinking. But I, I think I tried to compensate with my attitude, and that's never good. And so I, I opened the door and I said very sternly to get up. I told these guys to get up, grab their property boxes and walk outside single file and line up on the wall. And one of them just looked at me and he said a cuss word, but he was pretty much like F you. And my brain, my brain froze. Like in that situation, I never dealt that that time with somebody defying my authority. Right. And so I tried again pretty much told him the same thing again. And, but this time my voice was like shaking, right? Cause I was nervous. Now somebody was challenging me right. and well, that's not going to get very far because now they can see that you don't mean business. Right. So yet again, he told me to F off. Um, at which point I just closed the cell door. I walked over to an experienced deputy and I told him what had happened. And this guy, this deputy that I had talked to, he was, uh, uh, he was a Marine he had done time uh, in 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 the in, in the war, and and he uh, had fought in Fallujah. I mean, this guy had experience, and he was an experienced deputy. So he walked over and just calm as all be. He opened the door, and he handled it very sternly, but it wasn't like he was talking down to them. And it was just like business, right? And they all got up, grabbed their stuff, and walked out. And I learned that people can read you. They can read when you're inexperienced. They can read when you're trying to put on, um, you know, a, a, a sense of authority that you don't necessarily believe that you even have. Right. Um, but from there, I would, I, they had started assigning me to work the high custody level. I think we're talking about experienced inmates. Some of these guys were looking at going to prison. Uh, we're talking about major like gang members, right? So the the sergeants at the jail assigned me to work those those uh housing units. And it was hard because nobody respected me in there. And I was supposed to tell them what to do every day. I was uh and I had I mean countless times I had refusals to go to lock down like go to their cells. They were just defying me all the time. Um but I I thank God for my sergeants because they didn't I think they knew like the best way to learn is through experience. Right. And so, so they just kept throwing me in. And eventually through time, I did, I did learn like, I think my, my, you know, you, I learned to walk in every night at the beginning of my shift, for instance, excuse me. And I would, I would have all the inmates sitting at uh, tables and I would just walk in and not talk down to them. Nobody likes to be talked down to. But I would just say, hey, gentlemen, like, my name's Deputy Vernon. Some of you know me at this point. Some of you don't. Um, tonight, uh, like, for instance, if it was, like, a weekend, I'd be like, it's Friday night. I'm going to keep your guys' TVs on a little bit longer. Uh, I want you guys to enjoy your Friday night. Um, basically, as long as you guys, like, stay out of my way, I'm going to stay out of your way. Um, I want to have a smooth night tonight. I want you guys to have a smooth night. Uh, I have no animosity towards any of you. I don't know your guys' backgrounds. I don't know your guys' lives. You're all grown men and older than I am. So I'm going to give you guys as much respect as I can. The flip side to that, guys, is I expect you guys to give myself and the other deputies working here tonight respect too. And if you guys do that, we'll have a great smooth night. If you guys step out of line and are disrespectful, we'll have to take a different stance. But I'm not trying to do that. 
let's just all have a good night. Right. Right. You say that you talk to them like normal people. And I would say 90% of the time it's going to work. Um, I say 90% because sometimes guys just want to challenge you. Right. Um, but I was going to have that guy. Yeah. And in those cases where I would have somebody challenge me, I learned to address it, not in front of everybody else, but I would have that particular person like step out into a hallway. Right. And then I'd explain to him how he had messed up or disrespected us. And then I would explain to him what's going to happen. I would say, well, now that you've done this, um, I can't let that pass. You just disrespected us or defied our authority. So because of that, I'm going to do this, right? I'm going to give you like a, we have like a jail citation, right? Which basically it takes away like things from like, you know, things from them, uh, whether that be recreation time or, or uh, maybe if it gets really bad, you could put them in like isolation or give them like a certain kind of diet, which isn't very good. <laughs> like what? Like a brick diet. It's basically every day they, they don't get to eat three times a day. They get to eat once a day. And that once a day meal, they've done it scientifically. They figured out what the human body needs for nourishment, right? But it's not tasty. They take all of those ingredients. I would say they like purposefully make it terrible. Yeah, pretty much. So it tastes like, I, I tried nice. it before. It just tastes like a big like salt brick, right? That sucks, man. I would not like that. Yeah, so... But it, I, everything with me, at, it was it's, unless it was something very outlandish, like where they tried to like take a swing at a deputy. Well, of course we're gonna have to like get to handle that physically at that point, like right on the spot. But if right. it was just something like of like, a, like a minimal disrespect, then I would do steady progression of discipline. Um, and you, it's kind of like dealing with a child. Yeah. For, I was if, about if to say, man, this sounds like you're babysitting. It's it is just yeah. like, okay, I'll take away your toy. Yeah. But it's right. No up, more TV tonight, yeah. but instead of, times early, <laughs> instead of with children, it's a grown man. And then that's where respect comes in. Right. Right. So, um, I would usually do like a steady progression of discipline. I would explain to them why I was punishing them. Um, and then I would explain to them if they did it again, what was going to happen that way. There was not any confusion and there wasn't like a, well, I didn't know that this was going to happen if I did that. Right. So, uh, and usually, uh, if it got really bad, uh, you would go talk to the shot caller and, um, you would say, Hey, you know, this guy just did this. Now I'm going to have to, because of his actions, you guys are all getting, get your TVs canceled and have to go to bed early. Right. And, uh, at that point, uh, it would be handled. <laughs> the problem kind of solves itself um, right there. Um, yeah. Interesting. So, yeah, so I, um, I kind of want to wrap back to the sex offenders. Um, cause you, I don't think you explained quite yet what, what happens and like that kind of show in the papers and all that stuff, mm -hmm. which I've always kind of thought was fascinating. Kind of mm -hmm. culture behind it. Um, so when you're a sex offender or when you've done something like to a child, let's say abuse to a child, it doesn't have to be necessarily sexual, but if you like beat a kid, um, the inmates themselves, if they find out about that, that's one thing that they kind of don't mess around with. So at that point, if we throw you in there with general population inmates, they're going to, if they find out about that, which they have their ways, like they all go to court together. So at that time, they're going to try to, they'll, they'll usually figure out what you're going to court for. Right. 
And if they figure out that's what it's for, um, they're going to get their butt kicked by the other inmates because they don't tolerate that in general population. So we have to we have to throw those guys in protective custody because of that. Um, so what what all like it, obviously sex offenses against kids are probably going to be in there, right? Yeah. So what else would get you in protective custody? Some guys just can't politic. That's what they call it. So they can't. They're not functioning with those rules that are in there by the inmates, right? They just yep. don't like get it. Yeah, quote unquote. yeah, or they're just not with it. Like they don't go by that. They're kind of like a lone wolf. They try to do their own thing. Gotcha. And um, there was one instance where I I had a inmate that was refusing to go into a cell with a Hispanic inmate. He was a white guy. He was in general population, so. What is uh, it, do they like obviously the inmate inmates don't choose where they sleep exactly okay cool continue so i kind of explained to him too bad um this isn't summer camp you don't get to decide uh where you want to who you want to bunk with if you do want a different bunk you can fill out they have like a form they can fill out and they can send it to our classification unit and then they'll kind of look at it and see what's going on in some instances, they'll go up there, they'll talk to that inmate, and try to understand why. And if it's if it's legit, uh, they'll they will get that person like a new uh, cellmate or something. Well, what's like a legit reason versus a not legit reason? Uh, I guess a legit reason would be, for instance, like I don't like the way this guy is talking to me, and it's going to escalate to the point where we're going to have like a fight. Like he said this, he said this, he said this, um, or he's doing this kind of thing that's disrespecting me. And usually they don't to go about it that way. They'll just handle it like they'll fight each other. But if if we can see that it's going to go down the road where it's like, okay, it's probably not safe to keep these guys together, then we'll 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 kind of think about and we have to look at the numbers. Do we have open cells? And if we do, we'll try to keep the peace. So. That could be a legit reason, um, but in this case, but initially, they're not going to be able to decide that. They kind of have to go where we tell them to go. Right. And the, reason, and the reason that we do that is because if we start making exceptions for every single one of them, well, yeah, the prisoners can't run the exactly. Prison. We're yeah. gonna have we're gonna have requests left and right, and we do have. A, I mean, we have a numbers problem where there's a lot of them that are in there, so we're trying to, uh, you know, it's very rare that we even have an open cell to keep to put them in. So in that case, with this guy I was talking about, I explained to him, well, if you want to do that, you're going to have to fill out this form and you would send it to our classification unit. But until then, you're going to have to go in there. And he was like, pretty much told me to F off. And he was like, make me. Well, at that point, I was like, all right. So I grabbed him up and uh, kind of forcefully walked him in there. And then uh, at this point, I had been working in these me- you know, max jail facility or the max day rooms for a pretty long time. So the inmates that were already in there, they knew who I was. Oh, this joker, he decided to kind of try to run away from me at one point. So I put him in a headlock and I started dragging him over into his cell. Um, he bent down and he bit me on the, on my arm. Really? Yeah. So I throw him on the ground and then one of the inmates was like, what, what's going on? You know? And one of the inmates in the cells. And I told him, I was like, he doesn't want to house with a Hispanic. 
And he's like, well, he he announced to all the day room. He's like, that guy just bit Deputy Vernon. And he doesn't like Hispanics. He's like, bring him in here. We'll deal with him. Right? And, uh, well, of course, at that point, we're not going to feed him to the sharks. But it turned out that no matter where we put him, they have their ways of communicating. We would put him in a different day room, completely separate. And word would get over there of what he had done. And he just kept getting beat up wherever we put him. Really? So, so eventually... So they they kind of had their had your back. Yeah, that happened multiple times later on in my career. Dude, that's kind of cool, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the mutual respect. That's Yeah, that's neat. Yeah. So, um, of course, we had to put that guy in protective custody because at that point, he's unhousable. Uh, he kind of, he ruined his opportunity, I guess, so to speak. But yeah, I did that for a couple years. And then I, I actually got put into a, a select unit where we were in charge of um, coming up with the first uh, mental housing unit for the, for the jail that I was working at. Uh, I did that for a year. That was pretty crazy. that was like my first experience, like day to day, hands on with mental health. And then after that, I went to our classification unit, which I kind of talked about. That was a good experience because I got to talk to these uh, gang members every day, learn their tattoos. It was basically like a debrief every time they would come in. And then uh, shortly after that, I went over to uh, that other department I was talking about. So what are like famous gang tattoos that you would typically see? So for it all kind of comes back to the Hispanics all fall under the umbrella in Southern California of the Mexican mafia, right? For the most part, the Southsiders. They're all going to pledge allegiance to the Mexican mafia, and that is all kind of dictated in prison. So when you have somebody who's like a Southsider, there's prison tattoos that you can identify. One of them is like, they call it like a warbird, or a soldier, war soldier. And he looks like an Aztec uh, soldier, who wear, he's wearing like a bird helmet and like sometimes he'll have a sword or like a spear. And to get that tattoo, you have to put in like some what quote unquote work. Like you either have to have stabbed somebody or killed somebody in jail. So when you see an inmate come in with that, you're like, Oh shoot. Like this guy's probably done some work in prison before. Right. So we're going to have to house him in a higher custody level. So what, what happens if someone just gets a tattoo like that? Stand by. Did they just get like fucked up by everyone else? Yeah, you have to earn it. Huh. Okay, so that's in. Is that the Mexican mob? And is the Mexican mafia is that an umbrella term for yeah. all Hispanic gangs, or is that one specific gang that everyone else pledges allegiance to? One specific gang that everybody pledges allegiance to. Okay. Um, they are Southern California mostly. Anybody, any Hispanic gang that you run into, they're going to pay taxes to the Mexican mafia. That's how powerful they are. So they do that, whether it's through narcotic sales, anything, robberies, they're making money, right? The gang is part of the, part of the definition of a gang. And they're doing it for the benefit of the gang, their own personal gang, but they are also paying taxes to the Mexican mafia. So interesting. In Southern California, it's called the Sereños. In Northern California, you have a different faction called the Norteños. The Norteños are kind of on their own. They don't really pledge allegiance to 
the Mexican mafia. And because of that, a Norteño and a Sereno will never get along. It's almost like a kill on sight. Really? Yeah. And they are very harsh enemies. And are the Norteños just too far north? Yeah. Okay. And if they do run across each other, which is rare, I've never in my career have seen a Norteño in Southern California, ever. And that's 10 years dealing with criminals. They just really stay up there. Yeah, they stay in their boundaries. There is one story that's been passed around of a Norteño who tried to come down into Southern California. He made it to Bakersfield, and then he got into a pursuit where he was getting chased, not by the cops, but by the Sereños. And they were shooting at his car the whole time, and they chased him all the way to the border. Damn, dude. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what we've heard. (laughs) (laughs) But Um, So, like, what about uh, black or white gangs? So they're not going to be as structured as that. That is one thing that is, in one sense, admirable about Hispanic gangs is they very are much like the old kind of Italian mafia or the mob in one sense. They're very professional. They kind of try to stay out of the limelight. They're very right. business-oriented. It's all, For them, it's all about money. They're directly dealing with cartels. So human trafficking, nar- high narcotic sales, and for them, it's just all money-based. And they do not want the attention of law enforcement. So the, the, the least attention they have from us is good for business, right? They understand that. Yeah, that's true. If we do really start getting in their business, I mean, that could be kind of crazy because they are very powerful. Um, but black gangs, white gangs, they're, they're not as structured as that. They are, they are very much like kind of, that is your typical street gang, I guess you would say. Violent. Um, very, very nonsensical. They kind of just go out and try to commit crimes yet again for the benefit of their gang, but their structure is not dealing out discipline for going outside of their bounds most of the time. So they pretty much just do whatever they want. Mm -hmm. And it does not, that's when you learn, it does not lead to them being very powerful. It, 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 what I said is like it's respectable about these Hispanic gangs is they are very powerful, but it's because of, you learn it's because of that structure. So is like in an, a particular city, is there, you know, the Mexican mafia and then just fractured white gangs and fractured black gangs? Yes. Okay. And is there, and you, are, you already mentioned the difference between, I guess, the authority of the Mexican mafia in the white and black gangs, but is there a cultural difference between black and white gangs or are they pretty much the same? In my experience, and I, I did not deal too much, especially now where I work, with white gangs. I dealt with them a little bit when I was working jails, but on the streets, I, the only gangs I've dealt with have been black and Hispanic. And there's a huge cultural difference. Huge. So, is there not a lot of with just the demographics where you're working, we're just not a lot of white gangs or yes. are white gangs kind of hard to. There's not a lot of them. Number one. And the demographics of the city that I work in, there's, there's just none. Okay. They're just not there. Now downtown, you will have, uh, you will have the Russian mafia, which I've seen really. Yeah. Which I've seen a little bit of like their action, 
But they also very because they yet again they are they are more business oriented. They do not like to be seen or heard. They they like to do their crimes as under the radar as they possibly can. Huh. So they're more in, they're more into and I would say with them they're more into uh like illegal activity when it comes to like finances stuff like that kind of white collar crime stuff yeah and i'm sure narcotics too i'm sure they're dealing i'm sure they're in that i mean that's a huge market um but i only saw and it was crazy but he was running down a a major street at like three in the morning in in uh, the city that i work in and this is a metropolitan city so it's three in the morning and he's this dude is running down the middle of the street butt naked and he's covered in wounds like burn marks and so what? officers see him and they think he's trying to flag them down like help me help me and they're looking at him like this guy's got to be like mental like a 5150 right right and so they scoop him up and he starts rambling about how he had been tortured by the russian mafia the mob and they're kind of like, ah, but then as they're looking at his wounds, they're starting to look at it and they're like, wait a minute, those aren't normal burn marks. Those are like acid burn marks. What? And his like toes are smashed. His fingers are smashed. And lo and behold, our major crimes comes in and they're like, yeah, this guy's legit. No shit. <laughs> yeah. So it's there. But that was the only time in my career so far that I've seen that. Um. So you're going to be running into more when you're working in an inner city, in my case, depending on where you work, but black gangs and Hispanic gangs. And so the, the Hispanic gangs are dealing drugs for the most part. And what are the black gangs doing for money? Well, like same thing, drugs, narcotics, uh, but mostly too, they're really big. At least the gang that I was working when I was a gang officer, this was, we'll get in that probably more, but. The, the gang I was working with was a black gang, really big on human trafficking. And in Los, well, in, in, in the city that I was work that I work, that is a huge market because it is pretty much allowed by the city. What? Yeah. What do you mean? And what I mean by that is there's almost no prosecution for prostitution. And prostitution and human trafficking are right hand in hand. So they're making a killing. I mean, the most that you can do to a prostitute in the city where I work is give them a ticket, but it's not even like they literally go to the, to the, to the, to the station, they get a ticket and they go right back out the door and the amount of money they're making, they're going to pay for that ticket instantly. It doesn't even acute to like, it's minimal. It's a minimal payment for them. What do you think? And I guess I, I want to ask you what your opinion is about how to get rid of human trafficking or how to best fight it. But first, can you like kind of tell us what human trafficking is and give right. us kind of an example of it? Well, this, and like I, I said, guess, goes, how to avoid it if you're a lady. Uh, well, it goes hand in hand with prostitution, like I said. So like, do they pull up and toss you in the trunk or like, how does that work? I'm sure in some cases that happens. Um, I think that would be more specific to probably like Mexico and some of these other areas. But in my, in what I witnessed, the girls that were taking off the streets and 
this is where it becomes human trafficking is you have a lot of underage women. Uh, I'm talking about, we took a 14 year old girl who was prostituting herself. She was just on the corner in lingerie. That's so sad, man. And we figured out she was lying to us. She wasn't giving us her correct age and she looked older, but we figured out she was 14 and she didn't, she hated us for taking her off the street. She didn't want to go. And what, it, what that amounts to is her mind was, had been so warped from a young age. She was making a killing, right? On the money that, the money that she was making from prostitution was crazy amounts. She's 14 year old girl making thousands of dollars a day. Why would she want to leave that? Yeah. And that's where you get and into. I'd, I'd imagine there's like a, just thinking of Epstein and all that. I imagine there's a premium on like younger girls. Yes. And that's when you get into, this is how horrible it is. Their minds have been so warped by their pimps and by what they're doing that they have lost all sense of dignity. They've lost all sense of right and wrong. And for them, it is just purely based on money. They're making a killing doing it. Um, so that is more what you're going to see. A lot of these girls are coming from um, a lot of these girls that are going to be out there prostituting themselves. They got started really, really young. And they're going to be like orphaned, right? So they're going to be coming from shelters um, and runaways. You have girls, that, a lot of them, they're runaways. These guys are contacting them saying, if you want a better life, I could, I'll take care of you. I've listened to their phone calls where they're trying to recruit these girls, and it's sickening. Well, it's just, I'll, I'll pay you, I'll take care of you, that kind of stuff. Yeah, and it's basically, they, they recruit them from almost like a romantic standpoint. Uh, you're going to be my girl. I'm going to love you. You're going to, and they kind of just slowly put it in there. You're going to be doing like some of these things, maybe like some photos or some videos. And I'm going to have oh, you. So they, they like groom them. They groom them in. Okay. And then slowly but surely, next thing you know, they're a couple years down the road of doing this. And their mind has been completely obliterated. So it's yeah, very it's so sad, man. Very, like, very sad. They, I can't imagine, you know, a 12, 14 year old girl who's been out in the streets like a prostitute, you know, for years, I can't imagine how that person gets back on track. That's no, a, a terrible burden to bear. Right. And that's where you get to the bigger issue with dealing with crime of morality. Right. And a lot of people who take like more, I don't want to say libertarian and I don't want to get into politics too much, but a lot of people who take like a view on things of, well, if it's just like prostitution, right. It's an adult, She's consenting, and it's another guy who's consenting. Like, what does it really matter? Like, why do we care? And you learn very, very quickly that's a very slippery slope that you're going to go down because it's not just that. Yeah, I think it's naive to think that even if prostitution was legalized completely and regulated, that there wasn't human trafficking going on behind it. Pretty much that just happened in California. Yeah, so how is how does that work? So they just don't enforce prostitution laws? Yeah. So if you see basically the the law as I understand it now, 
you used to be able to, and this is what we were doing, when you see a woman who's standing on the street in a high prostitution area, and she's wearing lingerie, and she's leaning into car doors, talking to people, you used to be able to take them to a, uh, our division, and you would give them like a ticket for uh, solicitation, right? yeah, solicitation of prostitution, right? Already, that's bananas that you're just giving them a citation because that's just a revolving door at that point. You're not putting your foot down at all. And these girls, like I said, are making thousands of dollars a day. So them paying off that ticket is nothing. So that's just bananas in of itself. But now you've made it to where we can't even do that. You're going to have a huge infestation of prostitution. And to keep the numbers up, you're going to have to keep recruiting. You're going to have to keep bringing in more girls. Well, it seems to me like the best way to you stop human trafficking and enforce prostitution laws is not to go after the prostitutes, it's to go after the pimp. Absolutely. Might, okay. And so how, how does one go about that? Well, now you're going to have to, and you know this from a lawyer's point of view, you're going to have to build your evidence. And it has to be pretty like cut and clear that this guy is doing that. Right. Um, you're going to have to get text messages, which you're going to have to get a warrant for this dude's phone once you arrest him. You're going to have to get money. No, I mean, uh, in, I, obviously the evidence aspect, but like, do these girls turn on the pimps? Is that, or is that pretty rare? That's pretty rare. So I guess how, how do you go about cracking the, uh, cracking the case? Well, I think this is where you're going to delve into issues where, yeah, we have to pass harsh laws, not just on the pimps, but the prostitutes themselves laws where you're actually going to do jail time that we can take you off the streets. And I'm all for, at that point, getting him into, like, a women's, like, you know, shelter or classes, right? I mean, think about right. the mental think about the mental health, you know, trauma that these women have probably been through. They may not even realize it. Yeah. But you have to start getting them programs, right? And there are, and some people are of the opinion, and let me know your thoughts on this, that the prostitutes themselves like the crime should not the crime of prostitution should not be enforced but we should go after the pimps like i think it's um canada just changed their laws to this if i'm not mistaken where it's legal to be a prostitute right um but it's illegal to pimp or something something to that effect like how would you feel about that because i think their argument is that the prostitutes are the victims Mm. as well of the circumstance so I don't know. What what are your what's your take on I think you, that side of it? I think that's a very rosy way to look at it. I think if you pull a pull a weed, another one's gonna grow up in its place. Um, you're what, talking about pimps or the weeds? Yeah, yeah. And what I mean by that is yeah, you can maybe you and if this guy gets convicted, he'll be off the streets for a while. But we have so many gang members in the in these inner cities, and we have so many guys. This is such a big market already, and it's known. The cat's out of the bag. Right. right, but can't you say the same about the prostitutes, though? Like, if you pull one weed, moral sprout. Right, absolutely. So, so why not focus solely on the pimps? I guess is my question. Because, like I said, these girls want to do it, so you have to take away the incentive to wanting to do it too. I see. Okay. If we can take away both incentives, then I think we're in a bet. I think it's still going to be there because it is such a big market, but I don't think it's going to be as outlandish. All right, so you're yeah, you're the proposing, I guess, a two pronged approach for both the pimps and the prostitutes. Right. Okay. And it has to be harsh. It can't be like, okay, you got caught for human trafficking, 
and and these I hate to say this, but liberal cities, they're not any crime. They're not really prosecuting harshly. And that's just that is just a proponent for more crime. The cops I, the cops can only do so much. Yeah, I, I agree that it is definitely gonna create more crime, like not prosecuting, but don't you think that like a, that same example that we were talking about, a girl who's, you know, 14, if she has multiple convictions for prostitution, um, you think is jail time? Right. Is kind of the, the best solution for her? That's a hard, I mean, it's a very, very hard. And, and obviously that's an extreme case. Um, mm-hmm. So I guess that's a difficult one to answer. I think you but... have to take it very like case by case basis. And you would have to create laws. Where let's say that in the scenario where we're seeing a lot of these things of where girls, young girls are getting taken out of foster homes or they're getting taken and they're getting groomed really young. Yes, absolutely. At that point, if you have that evidence that this guy did that, you throw the book at him. You make it known that you can't do that. And there's going to be a harsh penalty when that happens when we have evidence that you have done that. For the girls themselves, I would say case-by-case basis, like you were just saying, if you have multiple convictions where we've arrested you and now you're just coming out and doing it again and it's been multiple times, at what point, it's like, at what point do you tell the little kid or stop telling the little kid, no, don't do that before you have to like spank him or put him in a timeout? Yeah, I mean, fair enough, I would say. And, you know, your heart goes out to them. My heart does. But when you're seeing it in this certain area where I'm working, literally up to on a, almost every street corner on a very like well-known street in, in the city that I work, you're seeing girls almost naked in lingerie in groups of three or, or four to five, and they're on every corner. And you have little kids trying to walk down the street to go to school. You got a big problem. And yeah, that's that's not sustainable. That's crazy. And to say that prostitution is just a crime in of itself is not true. You these girls are getting assaulted, they're getting raped. Um, you have guys that maybe disrespect the girls, and now they're going to get shot at by the pimps, or they're going to get tuned up by the pimps. You have robberies. A lot of times, these girls are robbing the. I mean, you could say they deserve it, and absolutely they do. But the guys that are picking up these girls, we have it all the time where they're getting their cars jacked. If they have an expensive car, right, and you drive down to go pick up a girl, well, yeah, she may give you service, but then she's going to call her pimp and he might come over with his because all these guys are usually tied to gangs and they'll carjack that guy. So you have all sorts of crimes that go along with it. Narcotics is huge. It's not just a one. It's bad for business to be stealing cars from your customers. These guys don't care. You have a very good businessman. Yeah. But you have. wonder you if they have, have to kind of see it. Case. To, yeah. You kind of have to see it to believe it. But you'll, on these corners that I'm talking about, it's almost like a drive through. You'll have cars backed up around the corner waiting to pick up a girl. Really? It's that yes. organized. Yeah. And so what, what can law enforcement do? In the city that I work, almost next to nothing now because of California and the way that they've, uh, in the way, in the laws that they've passed to, drastically decriminalize it there really is no answer to how how, i mean like i said citations i guess for ped standing in the roadway or solicitation of prostitution but as far as the guys actually now there is no really 
punishment for it. So you're, huh. you're gonna have a big problem on your hands. Big problem. Yeah, no kidding. And yeah, a lot of times people don't really think about what you were talking about earlier when, with like kids walking down the street trying to get to school. Right. Like crimes like that don't, obviously they affect the people involved, but they also infect the community around them in a really intrinsic way. Exactly. Where, yeah, kids are going to grow up with that environment, prostitutes on the corner, you know, pimps, carjacking people right. across the street. You know, that what that's a terrible environment to raise a generation uh, on. Think about this. So this is what I mean by we have a bigger issue of morality too now because you like exactly what you were saying. You have these little kids, little girls walking to school, right? And she's seeing this. She's also noticing the amount of money that these girls are making because it's right there in front of her house. Yeah. I mean, that's enticing. That's enticing, right? Now let's say that this life is not perfect. Right. Let's say that this little girl who's trying to walk to school and she's seeing all this, she's seeing this prostitute getting picked up, and she's also seeing this prostitute every week with a lot of money. Let's say that this girl, little girl, her home life is not very well, which is the case in a lot of these inner cities, right? So she, her, her, her she's, her, her family's not making a lot of money. She's barely getting by. I mean, she's barely even getting lunch at school, right? Well, when she turns fifteen. 14, 16, and her body starts to develop. And then one of these guys comes over and says, hey, you want to make some money? Right? Here's how. Well, that little girl, all of a sudden, she's much more susceptible to it. Right. And so when you put that out there, you, you can't just say that it's a victimless crime or you can't say that it's not affecting the community. It is drastically affecting the community. And that's a that's a bigger issue of morality, right? But that has at some point for that is the whole job of the police and the government is to make sure that these communities that people in America can just walk out and live their lives in peace. So at that point, the government and police are failing. the 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 criminal justice system is failing drastically. So how do you feel about – and this is kind of changing, I guess, topics here, but um, I kind of want to transition over into gangs because that's where you guys worked most recently, right? And and you already kind of talked about gangs, I guess, inside prison. Is it mm-hmm. entirely different outside? Yeah, it is different. It is – I mean the differences between a jail, being a jail deputy and being a patrol officer are – it's kind of the same like field, so there's similarities, but they're very few. Patrol officers and working as a gang officer is completely different. Um, we have a huge problem in the city that I work in of street violence. I'm talking robberies, shootings, homicides. So, and we have a huge amount of gangs. We have probably in this city biggest. Take away Chicago, Detroit, and New York. We're like gang capital, right? Right. So you have block by block different gangs that in some cases literally block by block do not like each other. Rivals, right? Right. That is what increases these amount of shootings. And when I say the amount of shootings, almost every day you're having a shooting. 
and you said uh, block by block, and I know the Hispanic gangs are more structured, so this may not apply to them. But for the white and black gangs, is it just like the neighborhood you grew up in? Yes. And that's just the gang you're part of? For the most part, yes. Okay. And it's generational. And that's what a lot of people don't understand is like, I think if you haven't been raised in the inner city or in uh, these cities that are in these little pockets of the city that are just oversaturated with gangs, you can't really understand what it's like. And this is where I'm all more than willing to have legit conversations with people about how do we fix this? Because us coming in as a police force and just arresting them consistently. Yeah, that's good. I mean, these guys need to be put away, but how do we stop it from continuing to happen? Right. Right. And that's a huge conversation. That is like something that is near and dear to my heart because you have a lot of little kids out there that are like, just like the, the prostitutes are getting groomed. Well, if I'm an inner city black kid in a black neighborhood, let's say my dad was a gang member for this particular gang. My brother is a gang member for this particular gang. My cousin's a gang member for this particular gang. What do you think is going to happen? Like you're going to want to be a gang member in that gang. This kid's not just going to sit there and go, well, and your family is making a lot of money doing this. So everything is the environment that you were raised in people outside of that. They don't really understand that. And it does obviously like police, we need to take a hard approach to it. I am a firm believer in that, but at the same time, there has to be an understanding with, I think you have to start with the kids. You have to start with them and you have to very like target them and do education that gets them to understand that this is not normal life. Right, there's better ways that you could be living. A lot of them don't even understand that. A lot of these guys that I'm arresting, or were, or I was arresting, I would talk to them, and and mo- I, I remember I talked to a kid one time. He 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 was he had tried to rob a dad who was coming out of a shoe store. The dad had just bought a pair of shoes for his four year old son. This black kid, he was a gang member. He was. 14 or 15 years old. He walks up to the dad as the dad's going to his car and he tries to carjack him at gunpoint. The dad did the exact thing that this kid thought he wouldn't do. And that is he fought back. And during the struggle, the kid shot and he shot the dad in this, in the throat and the dad collapsed into the car. When I got there, the dad was bleeding out from his neck and I tried to stop his uh, neck wound. I did. I stopped the bleeding on his neck, but he'd also been, I didn't know this. He had been shot in the stomach and he bled out internally and he, he died in the car in front of his four-year-old son. My partner and I, we did some, some work and long story short, we ended up catching the kid who shot him that night. Was the kid like remorseful at all? Not at first. He was putting on a hard face. And then when I got him, because he was a juvenile, I had to take him to a hospital to go get checked out before I took him to juvenile hall. Because actually during that struggle, he had also shot off around and he had shot his hand. Um, so I take him to the hospital. And while we were at the hospital, I was in a, I was in a waiting room, a pediatric waiting room, right? Because <laughs> right. he's a kid. And That's a, crazy. a mom came in with her baby in a stroller into the pediatric waiting room. And just as a man, 
I was professional about it, but I just was not comfortable with that mom and her baby sitting next to this kid after he had just shot and killed somebody. Right. And I thought if I was that mom and I knew that, I wouldn't want... I would not want to sit there. Yeah. So I told the kid, I was like, hey, get up. I'm going to have you walk over to that corner and you're going to face the wall. Right. And I was was a little harsh in the way I was talking to him. And when he got over to the corner, he's like, why are you talking to me like that, man? And I was like, dude, you have no room to talk right now. Like you just killed a father. And at that point he broke down and he started crying and like weeping. And as much as it it sucks, I mean, believe me, like that, that kid in my mind deserves to have the book thrown at him. But in a way my heart did go out to him. If that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, especially at that age, man, because you know, at 14, you don't think past 30 seconds in the future. Absolutely. And that, you know, that was exa- you have no concept of time past 30 seconds in the future. And as I talked and, to him, that's exactly what it, what, it, what it was, I believe. I don't believe he ever intended to fire that gun. That was not his right, intent. Shit that, happened and then right. it went downhill. And absolutely, he's guilty for it. Absolutely, he should be punished for it. He took a father away from his four-year-old son. But there is a sense of understanding there, right? where you kind of have to sit there and put yourself in his shoes. And I, we had a very long conversation about that. And his whole idea was, well, no, I'm going to be this gang member. And he kept telling me, he's like, this is, this is my life. Right. Same thing that we were talking about earlier. His father was, was, was a part of this gang. Yeah. So he, he firmly believed that it, and I was trying to explain to him, I, I asked him, I was like, have you ever lived anywhere else than where you're living now in that inner city? And his answer was no. So he had no idea what it was like to live in a community where there wasn't gang violence. So how do you break that down and explain to a kid that this is not normal way of living? That is an issue that is very, very hard. Yeah, I can't help but agree. Like in my, so I've been licensed as a lawyer for almost two years now. Mm -hmm. And I've done a year of prosecution, year and a half prosecution, about six months criminal defense. And that's obviously not equivalent to you know, your years in, of street experience, but I've definitely seen a, a fair assortment of defendants and it is a hundred percent a generational, like it is just this group of people that get together and it's, it's all, they're always together, always committing crimes. And then it's the same. And if you look at the police re- reports, you know, 30 years earlier, same crime, same last name. Cause it was the person's dad. Right in the, in the same you know address, and it's crazy, man. It's just repeating itself over and over and over again. And these kids who have again no concept of time, because a fourteen year old kid is an idiot. Absolutely, every single fourteen year old kid has like three brain cells that are bumping around in this vat of testosterone, and that's that's it. That's all that's in a fourteen year old boy's brain. That's it. Just testosterone and three brain cells, and yeah, just making a decision like that, like, oh, you know what? Yeah, let's go you know, rob this guy real fast. Next thing you know, you're spending years in, in jail or in prison because you killed someone and you took him away you know, from his kid. And I've never seen uh, like a, a teenager or a young adult come through, in, or I have. It's very rare that they do. But almost every defendant that I've seen has come from a family that 
is not very well put together. And there's absolutely a ton of exceptions to that. I'll say probably 60% have horrible family lives, um, probably like 75%, I'll say. And their, their home situation is absolutely not put together. And like you were saying with, you know, kids walking down the streets with you know a ton of prostitutes and drug dealing, if you grow up with that, you're going to fall into that again and again and again and again. Especially, and it's going to continue going. Especially, and this is where this is where I'm open to have a logical conversation about putting money into the community. But this is, especially if you're in an impoverished community, right? Now, I don't know exactly, and I don't think it's a good idea just to pump money in there because they've been pumping money into the area where I work for years, and it obviously hasn't made much of a difference. But there is something to be said where you have a very impoverished community. What do you think is these kids are going to do? Right? Like, it's, yeah, it's especially it's, if they feel hopeless, like they don't have a chance. Right. Like, why not? Why not? So I think there's a multi-pronged approach to it that is logical. And it may be harsh, but you have to, I mean, the way that things are right now with this whole progressive movement, to not punish people for committing these crimes, that is not working. We are seeing crime rates rise, right? Because of that. Now, you have yeah, to enforce that's... you have to enforce it harshly. However, like I was saying, you have to target those young kids so that doesn't keep happening. And programs, that's where you can talk me into investing in the community, right? Give these kids yeah, the get, opportunity. Get strong male role models out there. It's definitely Absolutely. Needed. But that's also, I mean, that's a mor- morality issue now that, that we are seeing. And I sound like an old, I, I, it's funny, I was explaining this to somebody the other day. I was like, I sound like an old codger. Like I sound like an old man. But I hate, not all of it, but I hate like the modern like rap music that is out there because it glor- like just glorifies gang violence. And it gives these kids in these communities, I can't tell you how many of these little gang members that we arrest, that is like their aspiration. They want to be a gang member and they want to be a rapper because it's popular. It's pop culture, right? Right. Our culture definitely hasn't made a stand against this. They just keep propelling it. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And so there has to be across the board, there has to be an understanding in our culture. And, and part of that is like I was saying earlier, People are in the environment they're raised in, and that to them is like reality. So people that are raised in like the suburbs where this isn't happening, they're not seeing the violent side of that. So to them, like this music that they listen to, like this the clothing that they wear that they put on this persona of, to them it's like innocent, I guess. But there's a very there's a flip side to that that they don't see. And that culture, it needs to be like destroyed. I'm not talking about race. I'm just talking about that culture of like glorizing like the gang, gang. Culture. Yeah, the gang culture. So uh, at least it needs to be made not cool, right? That's where our culture is right now. They kind of glorize it. But Yeah, that's true. But it is uh, something where my heart is there. I mean, as a police officer, we're still human, right? And when you see a kid that is in that or that is going towards that, um, It does, for me at least, and I think that this is the case for most police officers, it does hurt your heart. You don't want to see that. You're human, right? And so there there is a very 
I think not a lot of people understand that. There's a big human proponent behind being a police officer. They see us out there arresting the kid. They think that we're just there. That's it. We don't care. When in fact, we're trying to protect the rest of the community. Right? Yeah. And maybe that's... that's One one jerk living in a neighborhood can absolutely ruin it for everyone else. Right. And let it be... I want to be clear. This... So we've had, we just did a study in my, in my, uh, the division where I work per square mile. It is the most violent place in America per square mile. Now that's not saying that Detroit or, um, I'm sorry, Chicago doesn't have areas where it's more violent, but per square mile for how much mileage we have, it is the most violent place to live in America. What's, what's, is that gang violence for the most part? Yes. And is that like gang warfare? Yes. And what, how do gangs, like, is it just like two gangs and every time they see each other, it's just like bang, bang, or is there reasons to go to war? Or is it kind of like scrimmages or? So it could be something as simple as, this is what we've seen. It could be something as simple as a gang member will post something on Instagram, disrespecting another gang. And then boom, you have a shooting. Really? Yes. Social media is just starting these warfares now. Yeah. Or, I mean, it's, it's it could be more personal than that. I mean, in person, they can disrespect each other. But a lot of it is, this is what's crazy, too. But what, what I wanted to get across by saying that whole statistic thing was it is the most violent place to live in America per square mile. However, we've also done studies where I think it is 90% of the people that live in that division are not violent. So it's the ten. It's just that ten percent that is doing it all, and that's what people don't understand. Ninety percent of the people that we're dealing with, well, we don't deal with them because they're good people. Right. We'll drive around and they're they're out in their yards waving at us with their kids. But that other ten percent, they are making that place a war zone. Yeah. So, but it's as simple as it, it sounds crazy, but a young there is no more dangerous place for a young black man be than in that area he a young black kid right who he hears about this place because it is mentioned on the news and they have had rappers that have come out of this place so he hears about this place right now he's been uh he's been um he looks up to these rappers and he's been listening to their music and he thinks that he kind of wants to like see what this place is like so he's dressed down in his like kind of like baggy pants, big shirt, right? Um, he walks down into that, or he goes into that area. He's not a gang member, but he's just walking down the street. Gangs will roll up to him, and depending on what he's wearing, let's say he's wearing a blue t-shirt, and it's a bloods area, right? He doesn't even know that, but he's just walking down the street. In a matter of seconds, his life will be over. Just for wearing the wrong color t-shirt? So is there... Do gangs have any kind of like, because I know they tag obviously with spray paint, but is that how you know the boundaries? So like, okay, if I'm, you know, part of gang A, I don't, I see gang B's graffiti over here. So I'm not going to go in that boundary area. Yes. Or, yeah. And what else is, and what else is, is, is that what it's for to mark the boundaries or what? Yeah. what is the graffiti for? The graffiti is for, yeah, exactly that. Marking their boundaries, their territory, but it's also meant as like an intimidation factor, right? 
and they're trying to intimidate the community because a lot of times when we have a shooting, right? We go down to where that shooting occurred. You, let's say we have a dead body in the middle of the street. Okay. Well, this house over here has cameras facing the street. Let's go try to see if we can, if this was captured on video. So you knock on the door somebody will answer and you'll say, Hey, I noticed you have cameras. Do you mind if I come in and look at your cameras? Big majority of the time, they're going to say no. And that they do not mind and no, you can come in. No, that they do not want you looking at it. Okay. Because they don't want to be involved with it. They don't want to be targeted. That's what I'm talking about by fear and intimidation. And those gangs do that because they know that it's getting, it's putting fear into the community where they're not going to want to help law enforcement. Right. So there's, it, it is right. You're right. It is for marking their territory. Um, but it's also for like an intimidation factor. Okay. And kind of bouncing back to the, the gang warfare, those shootings, are they usually like a, like if someone just disrespects someone else on Instagram or some stupid thing like that is usually a one-time hit or is it like back and forth or like multiple hits? It is. Or is there even rules around that? There's not really rules. Um, you can imagine for Mexican gangs. Yes. But not for white and black gangs. Not that we've seen. Not as much. Interesting. It's there. Obviously, like, they have to call, like, their big homies, right? Now, there are some instances where they'll just, they'll just see somebody. Wait, you just said call their big homies, and I have no idea what that means. So, there is, like, some structure. And for the most part, if they're saying, hey, we're going to go do this shooting, they're going to call a guy who's been kind of, like, in the gang for a while. He has a reputation. Okay. And he's kind of the leader, right? So they'll call him and say, hey, this is what we're thinking. We want to go do this robbery or we want to go do this shooting. Depending on what, he, he may, he'll probably approve it or just whatever or not. But there are other instances where they just, like I was explaining, they'll just see somebody walking down the street. They'll think that he's a rival gang member. They'll go bang on him, which bang, banging on him means like they'll roll down their window. Hey, where are you from? Where are you from? He doesn't give the right answer and he's going to get shot. Huh. So that's it is a very violent culture um but so the, there is some structure in there i would say that the hispanics are they more all of them kind of i want to say prescribed to it and like i said they don't really like attention being brought to them so if they are going to go do something they really need approval and then they'll act on it but a lot of times, like the, the shootings that we're seeing with the black gangs, for instance, majority of the time, it's kind of senseless. Interesting. Like you always think of criminals as being the people who break the rules and people who don't want to abide by rules. But when it comes to the Mexican mafia, it's very fascinating to me how strict they are with the rules that they enforce um, and just how disciplined they are in following it. Yeah. And there is like a proponent to that that is as a law enforcement officer is very good to keep up in in touch with that. I found that in most cases, like I said, they don't want to be messing around with law enforcement. In some cases, depending on what's happening, usually all this is getting trickled down from the prison system. But depending on what's happening, sometimes they'll say, "Yeah, you have a green light," and then those rules will change. But it's there, and if you know about it, that also that helps you do your job a little bit better. That there's a green line on someone? 
Well, do they green light a person or like a gang? Both, but sometimes they also green light law enforcement. Huh. Just depending on what's happened. And that, that right. like I said, is all trickling down from the prison system. It, it seems like putting a target on law enforcement is a great way to be like become the spotlight of law right. enforcement very quickly. We had a, we, so is is that pretty rare? It's very very rare. We had a police officer off duty from our department and he ended up getting uh he he was in a a community in the city. And a Hispanic gang, very very uh, big Hispanic gang. Uh, some of their gang members tried to carjack him at gunpoint. They didn't know he was a cop. Right. So Yet again, they're expecting everything to go smoothly, and this uh, officer uh, gets into a shootout with them. They end up killing him, the the police officer. Those uh, they they tried to go into hiding, right? The the gang members that did that, and they were given up by their gang. Really? Yes. Uh, an FBI task force and a, a sheriff task force and our department joined together. And then through intel that was given to us by that gang, they were able to uh, catch them. That's crazy, man. So they're really just like, listen, we don't want any problems. Like, take them. Yeah. They were in the wrong? Yes. Huh. So it is very businesslike. You kind of learn that. And uh, that's the overall or the, the overall arch of a gang. But when you're actually dealing with them person to person – that's where the whole respect thing kind of comes in and learning to talk to people and learning to talk to them as gang members. One of my rules, and I was just, I just implemented this the other day was is I don't disrespect another gang member by if he's with his kids, like in the car, if I roll up and I pull him over and I walk up and say, I see he's a gang member. And I look in the back seat and I see his son who's young. I won't, I'll just tell him to carry on about his day. Now, could there be... Could is, is it just a respect thing? Yeah. Could there be something in that car? Absolutely. But you learn, yet again, it's that whole respect thing. If I see this guy again, which I will, when I pull him over, that's, that respect chip is already there. And now he's going to be more understanding and he's going to be more willing to go along with what I'm saying, Right. Right. So, um, you look, you just learned that from experience, but it is, a it is a fascinating day to day job. Yeah. Shoot, man. Sure. Sounds like it. Yeah. Um, but it looks like the fire's getting low here. Anything you want to close on? Um, not necessarily. I mean, I would just say, I mean, we could talk about law enforcement and policing for, for days, right? Yeah, it's a broad topic. Um, it's a very broad topic, and it's impacting now and more than ever. It's like political, right? So it impacts like so many different areas. I mean, you're talking about race, you're talking about finance, you're talking about the criminal justice system, and all that that entails, right? Which you well know. Um, I would say that you know, as a police officer for the public, just like with anything, whether it be anything you're dealing with in life, try to put yourselves in that person's shoes, whether that be a criminal or a police officer and do not jump to conclusions. 
wait for the evidence to be presented. But that's what we do with criminals all the time. And I would say try to do that with the police as well. And as a police officer, believe me, like I, I was, like we started out with, I was saying, you know, we see all these videos all the time. And some of them, I'm like, man, that looks horrible. But then as like more information gets disseminated and as you actually start seeing all the body camera footage, you're like, oh, wait a minute. This actually- It makes a lot more sense. This makes a lot more sense, right? There are some yeah. instances where you see something like that looks horrible and it turns out being horrible. And as a police officer, I am all for the justice system applies equally. We don't get to get away with anything because we're good cops. I love that because that's, that's, that is America, right? Yeah. Well, America should be. And so we are public servants. We're there to serve the public. So I don't want anybody breaching that authority because then we all look bad. So I'm all for that. But it just seems like nowadays we have a big problem with people to just see something on social media and they're like, ah, oh, this is the police. Yeah, without looking at any other perspective from that scene yeah. and knowing just the bare minimum about what happened. Yeah. Totally jumping to conclusions. Yeah. And that doesn't just strictly apply to policing. That happens with anything. Yeah, that's very true. You see anything like that is now getting put out there. I mean, you could look at it with politics, right? One side is saying this about this side, and they have this little video clip or this little audio tape to prove it. I'm always a little skeptical, like, what's the whole audio clip going to say? Or what's the whole video clip going to say, right? Right. And I don't care if they're differing on my politics. I'm still interested in like finding out the whole story. So I would say from a police officer's point of view, uh, give law enforcement a chance to prove itself before you jump to conclusions and start like what we see in like riding in the streets and all this hateful speech on social media, which I could care less about. Social media to me is, Social media, people are always going to be posting kind of crazy stuff. But we need to have a culture that supports law enforcement, that understands the job. And I think as law enforcement, we need to be more clear on what we're actually doing and why we're doing it. Yeah. You know, I think um, what, I've, what I've always said would go a long way is if more and more people did ride-alongs with law enforcement. Absolutely. So they could see firsthand exactly what happens. Like when you pull someone over, for example, like the reason that you're nervous is because he could have – you don't know who it is. He could have a weapon, and you just want to be safe and get home that day. But a lot of people who aren't in that position don't know that. So I, I think going on a ride-along is a, a great place to uh, to start if you can get one in your local community. I would too. I think if I was ever, which I won't be, but if I was ever like president or in some place of political power, I would say as, you know, like how, um, in, uh, when you're back in the day, when you were learning how to drive a car, you're going through driver's school, driver's ed, they would show you those videos like red pavement, or it was all those videos of like car crashes and people mangled to kind of scare you straight. Right. So that you don't drive like an idiot. Right. I don't, I don't even think they do that, do they? Now? Well, they should, man, because, you know, I, I've seen quite a few people that are young go to jail for, you know, recklessly driving and killing someone. Right. But I would say you should implement something like that as far as ride-alongs are concerned for young people, like in high school, where it's like a mandatory part of your education that you go on a ride-along with a police officer. 
because that breaks, yeah. that breaks down barriers. When you're actually in a patrol car with a cop and you see the day-to-day, the monotony, but then the high adrenaline, the crazy stuff that police officers are seeing, that gives you a perspective. And also it gives you a perspective of your community. Yeah, no, I think so too. Right. So that would be a, to me, I don't know, we don't know anybody in politics, but that would be something I would advocate for. Yeah, I don't know the logistics of that, but I think uh, people should certainly try and get a ride along if they can. Yeah, they might have to sign a waiver. (laughs) Almost certainly, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Just a little, by the way, you're just going to sign here just in case something crazy happens. Exactly. But we had a ride along a couple weeks back. And it was uh, somebody from the city. And uh, we were driving in my gang's territory. And I see a guy driving who is the same race as the gang that I am working. He's wearing the gang's colors, right? Right. And as I'm like driving, I look over and I can see his tattoos. He has the gang's tattoos. Right. So then I told my partner, I was like, hey, uh, we should check this guy out. Um, we see that his taillight is out. So we initiate a traffic stop afterwards. I ride along and it, it was fine. It was a fine, uh, traffic stop. We let the guy off with a warning. He was on probation. So we did a search of his vehicle for a probation check. Nothing in the car. All right, sir. Have a good day. Right. And afterwards, the person from the city was like, why did, why did you t- stop that particular guy? Is it because of his race? And I was honest. I was like, part of it. And people don't like to hear that. To them, that's crazy, right? Oh my gosh. But it's not just that. It's my knowledge and it's my, it's my profession, right? I know that his, in this particular part of the city, on these particular streets, that race is, is the gang that's, in, that's operating there. And then I see his colors that he's wearing. And then I see the tattoos. Now my mind's made up. We should do a traffic stop on that, right? Right. So is race a factor sometimes? Yes, but it's not the whole factor. And an innocent person who is that race that is driving through that neighborhood, not going to get stopped. Unless he's doing something outlandish, like blowing through a red light or something. So you're looking more for the tattoos and the gang colors. Everything. I'm not just going to stop somebody because of their race. That has nothing to do with it. Right. If it's just that. It's a part right. of it when it's the it's, totality. Yeah, it's a part of it when you see the other things that are lining up. Hmm. Interesting, right? So that is something that I, I got point. And after explaining that to that, and the person who was in the car, uh, the ride along that we had, it was not like, <laughs> it was not a conservative. I'll say that. She was in the car because she was doing like basically a check on us to see how we do our jobs and if we're doing them correctly. So she was one of those more progressive people. Gotcha. But after explaining to her that, she was like, oh, wow, that actually does make sense. Right? Yeah. And I, I did have to, I mean, it's, it's, people don't like hearing that because the race subject is so touchy. But a good officer isn't just going to use that. Nobody should. Yeah. I mean, that, that definitely makes sense. Like, just changing up the races. If you're pulling over a white guy wearing his gang colors, with gang tattoos, who's rolling up into like a black neighborhood. Right. There's no way he's up to anything good. Right. Yeah. So you would definitely look for a pretext stop to stop him. Right. 
Yeah, that okay. And I then follow. you're still not just gonna, even if you see that particular race wearing the gang colors with the tattoos in gang territory, you're still gonna have to find a legal reason to stop them. Right, you can't just pull them over willy right. nilly. So that is like our job, and that's why I say like we're professionals at what we do. And the guys that I work with, they're all professionals. I've seen it. I've worked with them. <laughs> They're not doing that. They're finding legal reasons to do it. And then ultimately we're pulling guns off the streets and we are, I mean, as much as we can, we're trying to diminish the amount of shootings and the amount of violent crime. Well, shoot, that's definitely an admirable, admirable goal. I'll say that. Well, that's where the whole, but then the legal system gets involved and yeah, that's another, uh, whole nother iceberg. That it is. So, but I think for tonight, Ethan, that's where we will leave it. Okay. Thanks for joining me around the campfire here. That was fun. It was awesome. I'm going to go take a leak. All right. Goodbye, Ethan. Uh, for everyone listening, if you have any questions and want to talk to us in the mailbag, email us at askroundthecampfire at gmail.com. And we also have social media up now at Facebook, Instagram. Our Instagram is roundthecampfire.podcast. Uh, so go follow us there and yeah, leave us a five-star review and it always helps out the al algorithm. So really appreciate it. All right. Thanks y'all. We'll see you around the campfire next time.